Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. On today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Marcy Rockman, a cultural resource and adaptation expert. Marcy, until recently, had worked on these issues with the National Park Service. Marcy shares her experiences and frustrations of working with the Park Service on historic preservation. We take a deep dive on what climate change will mean for cultural resources and what we can learn from the past in dealing with climate change. This is perfect timing. I'll be traveling to St. Augustine soon for the Keep History Above Water Conference at Flagler University. I'll be interviewing historic preservation experts on what sea level rise will mean for cultural resources. Marcy will be there too. If you are listening to this and going to that conference, please reach out to Marcy and myself if you want to chat about this episode. This conversation will be a useful primer on historic preservation. Okay, just a request to my listeners. I am putting together an episode on what it means to be an adaptation professional. Adaptation is a new emerging field and many of us have come to it from many other sectors. We all have our unique story. Maybe you're just starting off in your career or maybe you're looking to study adaptation and you have your own experiences that are different from mid-career professionals. I'm planning to interview multiple people for this episode and looking for interesting examples on how you got to where you're at or how you're planning to get there. Please email me at americadaps at gmail.com so I can learn more. Okay, before we get started with Marcy Rockman, it's been a few episodes and I wanted to share another letter from an adapter. This next letter is from Margaret and she wrote me after she listened to my interview with tribal expert Dr. Kyle White. Dear Doug and Kyle, a heartfelt thanks for the America Adapt episode on indigenous people and climate adaptation. I feel you touched on many of the complex dimensions of this topic very succinctly. I appreciate the consistent focus on politics, sovereignty, colonization, and patterns of dispossession which persist today in climate adaptation strategies. No doubt a lot went into the editing, as well as the discussion, so thank you for both. I particularly appreciated that you threaded your way through an examination of urgency and intrinsic value as a key stumbling block when understanding indigenous perspectives on climate. The intrinsic value question was clearly discussed, eloquently reframed as kinship values. I hope you return to the topic of urgency again, though perhaps in a more international context. I feel there is a need for greater public awareness regarding the historical ongoing use of this term as a calculated device for fostering broad public support for indigenous land grabs. Sometimes asking the same questions of other countries helps to eliminate structural similarities at home. It was so interesting that the question of cultural integrity came up a few times. I think it merits reflection on why that was and why the focus was not simply on impacts, vulnerability, resilience, and strategies. For comparison, consider that integrity was not relevant to the episode on LGBTQ people. And that's the uh, People's History episode she's referring to. All these topics are so important for people to hear and learn from. I want to tell you how happy I was to listen to this episode. I feel it's one of the very best summaries of the key issues. Thank you for not shying away from a difficult discussion and for the courtesy you show each other throughout. You've made an important resource that is now online for so many of us to use in our work and conversations. All best wishes to you both, Margaret. First off, wow, thank you, Margaret. Thank you for taking the time to write such a thoughtful letter. You touched upon many of the points that Kyle and I hoped would come across. I don't think the conversation ever got uncomfortable, but it was the first time where my guests so repeatedly explained why I was wrong. Engaging with indigenous people is an incredibly complex thing, and it's a two-way street. 
I think Kyle did a masterful job in helping us understand that. And also, I hope it's a resource for indigenous people. It can be a tool for them to understand how to communicate climate change more effectively. Thanks again, Margaret. Your email is a reminder of why I'm doing this podcast. And thank you for being such a great listener. Margaret has written before and she has shared what the podcast has meant to her. If you haven't listened to the tribal episode, I hope you will. Okay, let's jump right in and hear from Dr. Marcy Rockman. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. We have a very special episode, and yes, I know I always say that, but this is really special. With me today is an old friend and someone who's been in the news of late, and that is Dr. Marcy Rockman. Until recently, Marcy was a National Park Service's Climate Change Adaptation Coordinator for Cultural Resources, and now she's working with the International Council on Monuments and Sites to build a global-scale program for cultural heritage and climate change. Hey, Marcy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Doug. It's really cool to be here. All right. So just for my listeners, Marcy and I go back a ways. We are we are friends from a previous life. And I was thinking of some, some of the things that we used to do. And we used to go out to lunch with a fellow MPS employee, um, Tim Watkins, to the National Portrait Gallery, right? Yes. And there, were, there was this terrible pie place that you, all, you insisted <laughs> we always go. What was the name of that place again? Dangerously Delicious Pies. And I am very happy to give them a shout out because their pies are amazing. You know, they have good pies. I think I was more bitter. It was just like, all right, the only way Marcy's going to agree to go is if we stop by the pie place before we hit the mm-hmm. portrait gallery. So, yep, <laughs> very good pies. You have been in the news of late, and I want to dig into that a little bit later. But I just want to jump right in and talk about what you do and the the issue of historic preservation and climate change. And so, can you just briefly talk? What you've been up to in the last, you know, five, ten years, and that's it. sort of briefly describe that. But I sort of introduced you, you know, your, your work at the National Park Service was a big part of this. But what is historic preservation and, and climate change? How are those two kind of mixing together? Probably the easiest way to describe what I've been doing with my life over the last decade is to start with the work that I did at the National Park Service. And in that role, with that long, clunky title that you introduced, Climate Change Adaptation Coordinator for Cultural Resources, my job was really to figure out what climate change means for cultural resources. And cultural resources, this is where I wave my hands in the air, say it includes multiple things. Cultural resources, as defined by the Park Service and generally around the world, includes historic buildings and structures, archaeological sites, cultural landscape, basically a whole range of things that are related to traditional and indigenous communities, knowledge and practice, and then museum collections and archives. So there's five categories altogether. That is cultural resources or cultural heritage altogether. So my job was to figure out what does climate change mean for all of these different types of places, practices, buildings, materials, and all of that all across the country, wherever they happen to be. And then what do we do about it? You and I have had many conversations, especially when we work together at MPS. And so just, again, how I want to structure this podcast is we're going to talk about historic preservation and climate change, and I guess in a broader sense, but then we're going to dig into your time at MPS. And so I don't necessarily want you to jump the gun too much on your work there, but we used to have these very simplistic philosophical discussions about historic preservation because you were dealing with me. Yeah. And in I was thinking about this episode and, you know, the idea of historic preservation, which I think is very important. And, you know, we used to kind of go back and forth and you would needle me and we'd have some fun. But this notion of you preserving this historic site and, you know, I want to weave climate change into it. 
And I always thought it was, of course, we have to do that. We have to learn from our history. But at the same time, I always was a little bit depressed that some of these sites, you know, are no longer making history. And, and you know what I mean? We, we've chatted about this, that, you know, you put a bubble around them and they're basically tourist spots and maybe, uh, I guess, diminishing returns on scientific research. But just, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on that concept? I, it it kind of depresses me when I go to these, you know, major sites and it's just like, for some of them, they've actually been around, especially in the U.S., longer as a tourist site than they ever were as history making. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, that sense that this has been a place that we come to for history longer than it was in history. I'm going to make a note of that. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to take a little bit of a step back and just talk a little bit about how I came to be at the Park Service and just generally why I do what I do. So I, I'm an archaeologist by training and the reason why I got into my entire field was actually originally to solve a problem with recycling. And so back when I was in college, it was back in the days when all recycling needed to be sorted really carefully, needed to sort glass by color and take stamps off of envelopes and things like that. And there was one day where one of the offices on campus they got a whole bunch of envelopes, they'd had a whole lot of mail, and they just didn't bother with the stamps. And I went to pick up the recycling and it was just, it was a mess. And I went storming back into the office and was like, oh, you just, you have to take the stamps off the envelopes. And the staff just rolled their eyes at me and said, we don't have time for this. <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's no additional work. You just, you flick the wrist as you're opening the envelope, you take the stamp off, it's, it's nothing else. And they just rolled their eyes again and said, <laughs> we don't have time for this. So for the next two and a half hours, I took the stamps off of these barrels full of paper for them. And while you're doing something like that, you either get angry or you get philosophical or both. And and I did both. And I remember coming up with the question in my head, where does this idea that time is more important than resources come from? Because what I realized as I'm ripping these stamps off is no one said they didn't understand the taking the stamps off of the envelopes. That, that was clear. It's just it wasn't worth their time. It wasn't worth their attention. So I realized if I was going to save the planet, create a perfect recycling program, bring all those pieces together, what I really needed to tackle was this value system, this assumption that time is more important than resources. And I, I was historically minded from very, a very early age. And I remember thinking, so is this idea that time is more important than trees or resources? Is that a 20th century thing? Is this from the Industrial Revolution? Or does this go back to the dawn of time? Because I realized that's what I was up against. That's what I was going to have to solve. And I ended up putting all that into an application to graduate school. And I ended up at the University of Arizona. Yay. Very close to where you know are, Doug. And I had applied to work with an archaeologist there by the name of Bill Rathji. He was a Mayan archaeologist. But in the early 70s, he came up with the a plan for a new project called the Garbage Project. And the Garbage Project basically used the, the basic plan that archaeology is the study of the past through things that people left behind and threw away, basically old trash. And so he said, what happens if we use archaeological techniques on modern trash? Will the results we come up with match what we already think we know about the present? Or are we going to figure out something new? about the present, basically test, testing our methods. And so he did this and ended up coring through landfills and doing some really innovative stuff. And by the time I applied to him, he was just turning some of his techniques to recycling programs. So that's why I applied to him. 
And I explained to him my question and I remember him saying, well, you're welcome to work on my recycling program, but you're not going to get to an understanding of human behavior if you're only studying the present. For that, you're going to have to go into the past. You're going to have to become an archaeologist. So that's what I did and ended up with a rather complicated academic history, started with a Wyoming gold rush mining town. And then I ended up studying the British Paleolithic at the end of the last ice age and all of those things. And and I think I did some useful things in archaeology. My colleagues in the field of archaeology could probably give you some other opinions, but I figured some things out. But it was all done with the idea that understanding the past and understanding how people used resources in the past and how they came to learn about them would be useful to addressing modern environmental problems. And so that was the big perspective that I brought to the Park Service because I really wanted to dive into climate change um, and global change policy and say, we have all of this information from the past. In all of my research, I think I figured out a way to use it, but I wasn't seeing it being used in policy by the time I got to Washington, D.C. So that was one of the big frameworks that I really wanted to develop further when I was at the Park Service. Okay, that, that was wonderful. And, and wow, you you were certainly a recycler if that <laughs> led you down this path. That's hardcore. Yeah. Okay, so that's great. I'm, I'm, I hope that's useful for people framing like your own sort of history and get, getting you here. And uh, I've always wondered what sort of inspires people beyond just the, the love of history. And that, that that's an amazing story. Okay, you know, so I, I do want to is we talk in this sort of first section more about the field of historic preservation. I have these questions for you, but then back to that notion of how we sort of are valuing historic sites or even the, the what it means to do historic preservation. And this can get just, uh, you know, we can not get in the weeds, but I'm just, we can get, I'm just, it, it's hard for me to put a finger on like why we value these things. Is it just because we want to learn from history and maybe not repeat the mistakes in the future? I mean, what are you discovering? How are the people that you're encountering sort of saying, why is this important to them? And like you look at Europe, uh, as when you go to Europe, it seems like they value their history more than we do in the U.S. And why is that? You just, you've hit on a really interesting distinction. And I've, I've talked with some of my colleagues and friends over in Europe and particularly in Britain about that sort of contrast. And just to, to put a really uh, the clearest example I can on it, I find when I read documents from the UK that include heritage in them, they appear to me to be written from the perspective of heritage is already important. Like they don't have to explain why heritage is important. They often don't even have to explain what it is. It just, it is, heritage is important. Whereas there isn't a single thing that I wrote when I was at the National Park Service in which I, I always had to define what heritage was. I mean, the first sentence was always cultural resources, parentheses, by which I mean archaeological sites, historic buildings, da, 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 things that give us information about the past. I always had to explain it because I couldn't assume that an audience in the U.S. would know what I was talking about or have an understanding as to why it was important. I always had to explain that. So there's that distinction there. And one of the things we've taken a dive into with in these conversations with my colleagues over there is, on the one hand, history and heritage in Europe is often more visible. I mean, it's very, it's very much right there. And <laughs> you, you can see it a lot. It surrounds you. There is so much history in the U.S., but in so many places, we can't see it as easily. 
I lived in LA for a while before I came to DC, just for example, there's a lot of really old history in LA. People have lived in the place that is now LA for over 10,000 years. Wow. But you can't see it. Oh, oh, this is really fun. One of the Gabrielino elders that I coordinated with several times told me that Santa Monica Boulevard on the big roads through central L.A., that is the old Gabrielino route to the sea. And if you look at a map with that in mind, you can kind of see it's not a perfect grid of L.A. And you can see the path of Santa Monica Boulevard. And if you sort of mentally strip away everything else around it, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how that goes with the surrounding topography. That makes sense once it's explained to you that way. But just looking at the current structure of L.A. and you drive down Santa Monica Boulevard, you wouldn't know that. We can't see the history in so many of the places that we live in the U.S. in the way that we you can see it abundantly over in Europe. On that note, I'm just I wonder if there's sort of like this value system of previous cultures, you think like less Native American cultures, a lot of them just lived where they're not leaving a big footprint for future historians to kind of find a lot. I mean, although there's probably a lot more than most people realize, then you look at areas that have left a bigger footprint. They said, you know what, we are going to build buildings and walls and all these different things. And I mean, as a... Is it all just sort of equal? I mean, it, it seems like obvious what the obvious answer is, but I mean, just your sort of understanding of cultures, like who leaves a more significant footprint for historians? Yeah, it just, I don't know. Is there any sort of how you guys look at that? There's so many ways to look at this, and this may take us down a path that we, we wouldn't necessarily want to go in this, but it's a really, I think, important thing to say. In the history of colonialism is also really deeply baked into this. And you think of the... European arrivals in North America, so many of the native populations, such an enormous percentage were wiped out through disease. And so, so many of the people who wrote about and uh, the early colonists and some of the slightly later folks who just recorded what they were seeing around them, they literally couldn't see the size and scale of the societies that had been there. So many of the North American sites, they perhaps didn't build as much in stone, but they were such vibrant from everything we can see. They were vibrant, complex, knowledgeable cultures. And I think we're really now just starting to understand just how complex and uh, deep they truly were. There was one writer who's uh, done a lot of investigations into just what was the scale of the depopulation of the North American um, Native American tribes. And he said, we don't know how many Socrates were lost. We don't know how many philosophers. We don't know how many storytellers and play how many equivalent William Shakespeare's. And I, I feel I can feel my own colonial trainings or even in using that analogy. We don't know what was lost when all of that happened. And so we went and we've gone and built on top of a lot of what they had created without always reflecting what was there previously. And then one more piece, going back to that distinction between Europe and the U.S., over there, where there is heritage that's more visible, and I think there also there is that cultural continuity. Someone pointed out that we will look at ruins in the American Southwest or in Central America, and we will say, oh, these places were abandoned. But you wouldn't look at Stonehenge in the U.K. and say, oh, Stonehenge was abandoned. It's different because we can see some of the cultural continuity. Oh, they just stopped using Stonehenge and, and they moved on and did something else. And we accept that. And but it's almost this linguistic style that we have where 
you also have to be aware of it to catch yourself and say, well, wait a minute, there are still Mayans living today. The same as the descendants of the people who lived at Stonehenge are still there, but we use a different language to talk about it. There are descendants of the Anasazi living in the American Southwest. They, they have not completely gone away, but we use a different language to talk about it. One more flip uh, of that, that comparison is that in part because there is that cultural difference in the U.S., there is an anthropological tradition that in a sense does recognize that we don't know the history of a lot of these places. And actually, the University of Arizona is one of the first anthropology departments in the country. And one of the reasons it is that it was founded is there is so much visible history in the American Southwest. You can see the Pueblos and the pottery on the surface of the desert. And so the study of anthropology and anthropological archaeology came about because we said we need to understand who these people were and what happened here, whereas they haven't had that same sort of need to understand something that they didn't have the background in over in Europe. And so we have different academic traditions as well uh, between the two sides of the Atlantic. You know, especially with indigenous cultures, oral history must be the bane of people like you in the sense, of course, the beautiful ways of expressing history, but in the sense that there's not a, not a lot of that information left. And so, it, yeah, you, we've lost a lot because of all those oral histories. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about climate change. And if as a, as a primer, and you, you, you talked a little bit about this, but just... How is climate change, I don't know, making your field evolve, but is it radically altering it? I, I, I just can't imagine you can do what you do anymore without climate change being such a driver of everything that you do. There's a term that the military has used, used and I think it's so appropriate here, that climate change is the threat multiplier. Right, yeah. And that's definitely what it is for all the different types of cultural resource. So... One of the pieces that I, I, I say so often is that all of the, those different forms of cultural heritage or cultural resources, they've always been affected by environmental forces. And being an archaeologist, I always have in mind sort of a lithic scatter or a pot scatter, you know, something like that, just to have that in mind. Those have always been affected by rain, wind, floods, soil deposition, burrowing animals. And it's not that... What climate change is doing is moving from a situation in which all pieces of history have just been stable and static and not changing and not being removed to one in which they are being affected by environmental forces. What climate change is doing is it's accelerating, it's intensifying, it's recombining a lot of environmental forces and in some cases adding new stresses. So the things that have affected cultural heritage throughout time, they're all still there, but they're happening faster. And that is definitely changing our understanding or our sort of our mental models of like, oh, this this is what's happening to this site. And then there's sort of there's another piece that goes along with this. And there's definitely a contrast between sort of the National Park Service properties specifically and, and that charge that I had in that position with the National Park Service and just sort of archaeology and historic preservation more broadly. If a piece of cultural resource or a piece of cultural heritage is in a park, it's essentially in a place that's had a boundary drawn around it. And it's had that boundary drawn around it. And that boundary basically says we're not developing. Humans are not going to do something new to this space unless perhaps they need a new road, a parking lot, or they decide to develop it as, as you're saying before, sort of a tourist attraction or, or some interpret it for the public. 
so it's basically unless humans decide to do something to that piece of heritage within that boundary, nothing's going to happen to it. And so management of cultural heritage within the park service really has had that frame in mind that if it's in a park, it's going to be okay unless we've decided to do something to it in the world that is outside of the park service. We have the full field of cultural resources management. And what that says is that we recognize there is heritage basically everywhere. And anytime something is going to be developed, it's called an undertaking and it uses federal money. It's on federal land or otherwise has to comply with federal regulations then the National Historic Preservation Act applies and there is a process by which the area that will be affected by the project is assessed. Is there cultural heritage here? Is that cultural heritage significant? And if there is significant cultural heritage, will that significant cultural heritage be affected by the project? And if the answer to all of that is yes, then there's a process for engaging with stakeholders and figuring out what to do. There's, But there's still that sort of assumption that the main impact on cultural heritage will be humans, will be us doing something, deciding to build a road, a pipeline, a, a housing development, and so forth. What we haven't done as a broad field is really kept track of those environmental forces. Those have been sort of the background noise. So we don't have in place outside of the Park Service, or sometimes even within the Park Service, to track and really manage and monitor the environmental forces that are happening. And what we're seeing with climate change is, as you know, climate change does not respect boundaries. It does not care if it's a park or not a park, if it's state land, private land, federal land. That flood, that storm surge, that wildfire, it will affect cultural heritage wherever it is. And so one of the things that the, I would call it the heritage community, um, which is sort of partnered with the historic preservation community that we're trying to really get mobilized to do is recognize that these forces, we need to be tracking them in a way that's different from the ways that we had been tracking those forces previously. You know, that, that was a wonderful description of, of some of the, I guess, technical ways of kind of responding to that. But I, I like to think of climate change and like your field, historic preservation, but even my previous life was wildlife conservation is that it's kind of making, you know, it, it, it's an uh, empty rhetoric detector or more appropriately a bullshit detector because you think of all the people sort of saying, you know, we got to protect our history historic heritage or we got to protect wildlife and it's really creating this urgency it's really making forcing us to make some tough decisions and do we truly mean it do we truly care about these things and so i i think it, it in the big picture it's not a good thing but it's a good but it's there's some value if it's forcing us to just i guess look beyond this empty rhetoric that we approach a lot of the things that we think we care about you know i think one of the things I've, I'm starting to jump up and down about this even more than I did when I was at Park Service is that I think cultural heritage is one of the, what I say, features of our world. Uh, it's, it's a clarifier in the sense of it really helps us understand what it is we care about. And I've, I've often seen this sort of dichotomy where it's really hard to get attention and particularly funding for cultural heritage before damage happens. But then once damage has happened or something has been lost, there's a great deal of attention and concern and angst over what has been lost. And I could go down another track of like, oh, we don't ever seem to learn. But one of the things I've seen that's that's really quite powerful are the discussions in which 
we've recognized, say, with all the environmental forces that go on, I'll just blanket statement, we've never been able to save everything. We, we don't have everything that has ever existed, which is probably a good thing in some regards. So we've never had everything. And we've always known we've never been able to save everything. And that's really the hoarding approach. Do you really want to save everything? And I think I understand from some very early on in the history of historic preservation, sort of in 1935, one of the first pieces of legislation that was put out about heritage preservation basically said, we should save some of everything, but not all of everything. So it's there's always been, or there has been for quite a long time, a dialogue about what is it that is most important. We know we can't save everything, but when we are deciding to save something, what is it that we choose to save? And that question really is transferring and translating over to climate change really powerfully because we can see and we're starting to track and understand this threat multiplier that climate change is for cultural heritage and saying, right, we can't save everything. But given the values that we have and given what we think heritage is useful for, what is it that we most save? What is it most important? Where do we pull out all the stops? And where do we say, we're done here, we have to let this go. And that's, we're just starting to have those conversations now. And I think as we go forward, those are going to be some really powerful conversations down the line. I've had some numerous people have asked me over the course of when I was in Park Service was saying, okay, so where has Park Service made the decision to let something go for climate change? And I don't yet have that specific example. I'm sure there are things that we have lost, but it was not yet a deliberate decision saying we have looked at these climate projections, we've looked at the vulnerability, and we are making the explicit decision to not save this particular resource. There were some projects in progress when I was there where we were designing some methods that we really wanted to be transparent so that we could make those decisions, but we hadn't gotten to them yet. And I think the the example most people wanted me to give them was sort of the Cape Hatteras lighthouse, you know, tipping over the edge of the cliff. Like they wanted me to give them that example. And it's like, I don't have that example for you. But my expectation is that at some point we are going to have we, and I'm meaning that in the big all of us, we, uh, society, we, nation, we, we're going to have to make those decisions and we will watch something go over the cliff or we will have uh, deliberately stepped back and said, we're letting this go because we have decided we're not going to put effort into saving this over here because we've decided something over there is more important. And okay. I want to have some fun here and, uh, right. and just, I don't want to get down in the weeds, but in part of the decision, yeah. let's say even MPS, like what you decide to let go is sometimes legally your hands are tied that you even have to uh, try to save it. And so that in itself needs its own reforms. I, I'm not quite sure on the, uh, historic side, but with natural resources, there are some legal ramifications of just, Oh, we're going to let things go. And so it gets complicated very quickly. Yep. The, the one thing that I, I, I always just pondered when I was at MPS, was Fort Jefferson, and you've done, you know it well. You got to go there, right? You went there, right? I did. Right. I've actually never been there. I'm from Florida, but it's about, I think, 50, 100 miles off the coast of Key West. It's a national park unit. 
It's this wonderful fort that's right there on this little island and great scuba site, but people go out from Key West to go visit that. And so the big issue now is sea level rise, and of course storms play a big part. But the, the the discussion of like, do we save this? And let me let me walk you through this, and then you can share your own experiences there. Okay. That I I think about that. Do we spend the resources to try to save this? And okay, that in itself it's its own discussion. But then back to this, I think almost silly idea of historic sites no longer making history i look at fort jefferson as one of those it's just there it's a tourist destination and there's i, I i'm sure there's some research going on but you probably there's already been a lot of work accumulated there but let's say the seas do rise in a way that it just takes it out all of a sudden fort jefferson is making history again and right. i hate to say is that a good thing but i find that a very interesting thing and can we learn our lessons from like okay we're watching this thing fall apart in front of our eyes over, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. And it's making history again. Just curious your thoughts and I guess your own experiences down there at Fort Jefferson, because it really is a great example of like, here's this park unit right in the middle of all these things we're talking about. Yeah, it is such a good example. And it's actually ties to one of my earliest memories or one of the first challenges that I had when I arrived at Park Service, because I had literally been at my desk maybe a couple of weeks and I got a phone call from the person who was superintendent of Everglades and dry tortugas at the time. And he you know, sort of picked up the phone. He identified himself and, and very quickly the question became for Jefferson, Marcy, what do I do? What do I do about this place? How do I make a decision for this place? And there are some very specific issues affecting Fort Jefferson. So the fort itself was never fully completed. I, I find it kind of fascinating. It, it's three stories. It's got three big stories on it. It was too heavy. It was like it was sinking into the island. And if you have an unfinished building, that's not the most stable form for building. Like They're much better if they're complete. But then also you've got this building that is brick, mortar, and embedded with some iron in the midst of a whole lot of seawater. Like that itself, not a sustainable combination. <laughs> like those just like, fall apart. They just do. So the superintendent there was really struggling with these major maintenance issues. And just about the time that I started at Park Service, they actually had some major wall collapses. The fronting on a couple of the faces of the fort had literally fallen off into the moat and that they knew that the moat wall was also being overtopped in some places and it was being undermined. So really, it was a massive repair bill. And the question was, first, okay, how much does all this cost? Can can we afford it? And then there's also this question, which I think you were also touching on is, how do we, are we allowed to change it? Or do we have to keep it frozen in time? And a lot of the historic preservation legislation, the way it's currently written, pretty much say that once we've decided something as a historic resource, then we freeze time and we hold it in place and we don't change it. It may have been changed many times up to the point where we decided it was a historic resource. But once we've said this is a historic resource, we stop changing it. Because one of the proposals I think that had been made to the superintendent is just raise the moat wall, just add some layers to it, make it higher. But that would be changing it from its historic condition. So where, how do we start to draw those lines and, and, and make those boundaries? And I remember telling him, like, it's not my decision to make. <laughs> it's the decision of the superintendent to make that decision. And it's my responsibility to get him as much information and help create policies that will help him make that decision. That was that was my role. 
And I think the choice of Fort Jefferson, as, as you're pointing out, is a really interesting one because it's not a place that a lot of Americans go. I think their visitation is in the range of it's maybe 250,000 a year. And I could be very off. I, I think I had seen a figure for that at some point. It's not the most visited park. It is an amazing location and it has some very interesting stories in it. But where does that where does Fort Jefferson fall? amongst all of the stories of all of the different, even all of the forts that occur along the eastern seaboard. How do we balance those two? And if we were to put money into Fort Jefferson, into fixing it, which clearly it needs, then that takes away some attention and time and funding that we would put into other forts. And one of the suggestions that I came up with for Fort Jefferson was sort of like you suggested, what if we did do something dramatic? <laughs> and my my mental trick is saying, OK, what if, what if we put a large bubble over it or did something that was very obvious? And there is actually a trend in historic preservation when something is fixed and it's a new repair is you make that repair look obvious. You don't try to hide the fact that you've repaired it. You make it very distinguishable. If you can, you make it consistent, but you make it distinguishable that this is new and this other part is the original and the old so that people on uh, in the future will be able to make that distinction as well. There is a list of adaptation options that I came up with as part of my Park Service guidance development. And it included a number of really treatments that we, we always use or, or use very often. There are things like um, you, can, you can elevate a building. So it was sort of, you know, raise it um, or putting new shingles on it. You help a building resist the change. There are things like you document and you let go. We have the entire Habs Hare Howells docu heritage documentation program is can be part of that. You can excavate it if it's an archaeological site. Then down at the bottom of that list, I added the room for creativity and I called it interpret the change. And my intent behind that was, OK, we have all these more standard treatments that are designed to really protect and, and keep the information and the historic character that we've always been legally obligated to, to do. But here's this space for creativity. And if we can't keep everything the same, climate change is the heritage of the future. It is it is here. It is already affecting. It is now part of the story of all of these historic places. So one of our possible approaches is to highlight that and to do something that really shows that change and starts to preserve and interpret and characterize what that change is. And so putting a large bubble, for example, over Fort Jefferson would be an example of interpreting the change. And I usually would get a couple of nodding heads in the audience and people looking at me a little uh, awkward sideways. But I said, we've we've got to put that in our list, even if we haven't yet figured out exactly how to use it or when it should be on the list. And I by the time I ended my position at Park Service, I was getting the sense of feedback of from a lot of colleagues saying, we're glad that's on the list. We still don't know exactly how to use it, but we're glad that is on the list it, and this concept of changing the structure or adding to it and it, you've been there as you go to the coliseum in, in rome and at some point on the 17 1800s they were doing some restoration they used brick or red brick and i hate yeah. it i hate it it looks terrible and i and i get at the time they probably did the best that they could and so yeah. we we would probably have that same dilemma we think we're doing the best that we can and 200 years from now it's like what were they thinking using plastic right. you know we are talking a lot about national park service and let's transition into that and you know just a thought. I, I think of the tough decisions that have to be made, and the National Park Service does a lot to communicate 
okay, these parks are here. And re- and remember, I don't know if they're still doing it, but I think the one of the campaigns was Find Your Park. Was that the name of the campaign, Find Your Park? Yeah, that was the centennial, the big celebratory centennial motto. We're push, yeah. Right, and so the notion was like, maybe there's a particular park for you and it's a big campaign. And it occurred to me at some point, and they're not prepared to do it now, but I think your strategy that you worked on at the NPS offers a framework of it. it at some point, the park service is going to say, we have to give up on these parks. And so... It would almost be interesting to see the social experiment that they not say these parks are under threat. They're like, no, these 37 parks are, we're officially giving up on them. We're going to still manage them, but you know, they're doomed in, in the foreseeable future. And so there's a new campaign, visit while you can. And is the park service really kind of taking some of these things seriously? And I don't know if you would agree with me, but I even looking at the strategy that you, you wrote, there's your pathway to get to making those decisions. And so uh, the park, it's, it, they're going to be forced to go there someday. And I, will they have like a, I think a strong, confident response to climate change or will it be sort of a muddled kind of like, well, we could still save everything. It, it, it remains to be seen. One of the sort of building on that sense of, I, I think we would struggle to actually let go of a whole park. I think, I think we're hitting a boundary there. One of the discussions that came up or one of the ideas that came up very early in my time at the Park Service, when we were looking at coastal parks particularly, was the recognition that we may not be able to save or prioritize everything in every park. And I remember the discussion really was saying, for example, we have a whole a large number of parks that are based around forts along the eastern seaboard. So you've got Fort Jefferson, you have Fort Pulaski, you've got Fort Sumter, you've got Fort Monroe. And I think I'm, I'm missing some others. And one of the recognitions that came up was right now, a lot where decision making for what to preserve and where to put money really has been happening at the park level. So it's the superintendent who makes that decision. And what we recognize or the the point that was made was the need for really coordination across the service and really opening discussions between parks and at a regional level to make sure that the decisions that were being made were in the end preserving some sort of balance. And for example, if all of the superintendents of all of the major fort parks on the Eastern seaboard said, you know what? My priority is shorebird habitat. That's just, I'm a biologist or I've listened to my biologist or just that's what I'm hearing and we need to preserve shorebird habitat. Then what happens is we've preserved a lot of shorebird habitat, but we've lost a lot of the forts. <laughs> or you could have them say the fort is the reason this park is here. So we're going to prioritize each each park prioritizes the fort. And then what happens is maybe all of them, because they probably put in seawalls, they will have lost their shorebird habitat. So how do we balance between parks and make some of those decisions of saying, well, maybe at one of these parks, we really emphasize saving the fort itself because that particular story and that particular history of that fort, that is the most important thing here. But that at another park, being able to say, the story that's important here is still important, but what this area and this environment and what the whole system needs, we need to preserve or emphasize or prioritize the shorebird habitat here. Or at another park, we really need to emphasize or allow the modern infrastructure, you know, the road that connects the different, say, Outer Banks communities. We need to make sure that that's still in place because that's what the people who are living here now most need. 
And we hadn't yet really had those discussions, but I think there was some growing recognition. There definitely were those discussions of prioritizing potentially different things at different parks. Hmm. Hey, adapters. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Dr. Marcy Rockman. We'll return shortly where she reveals the details on why she left the National Park Service. First off, I want to update you on the Podcast in the Classroom initiative. I will be mentioning this pretty much every episode. We have updated the website. Thanks, Kate, for that. And there are now seven episode discussion guides now available. Keep in mind, these just don't have to be available for discussions. You can also sub them in for writing assignments. There's also a new assignment outline that can help students create their own podcasts, which could be tailored to any topic, not just climate change. If you're a teacher, instructor, or lead workplace trainings, these resources were developed for you. A link is available in the show notes. Also, for professors, we know you are starting to develop material for your next semester. Contact myself or Kate if there is a specific episode of America Daps we haven't developed a guide for, and we can do that. Both our contact uh, emails are in the Podcast in the Classroom page. As I noted earlier, I'm going to St. Augustine for the Keeping History Above Water Conference. It's about sea level rise and historic preservation. I'm being sponsored by the University of Florida to record a podcast and lead a podcasting workshop. If you happen to be in St. Augustine during those dates, the podcasting workshop is actually open to the public. That should be fun for those who want to learn how to launch your own podcast. Okay, upcoming episodes, I'll be talking to a researcher at Yale on how climate science fiction or cli-fi can actually influence someone's behavior. Cli-fi guru Dr. Amy Brady was my co-host in that interview and looking forward to that. And I will have some episodes related to some conferences I'm attending too. Okay, America Daps is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Didn't Donate page in the show notes. I hear from you guys all the time. You listen to hours and hours of this podcast. Please consider giving even a small amount. Again, this is a charitable organization. It needs just for me to keep doing what I'm doing here. So please consider doing that. And if you are an organization and are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There's so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. I'm actually hoping to find a sponsor to go to the Adaptation Canada 2020 in Vancouver next year. I know I have a lot of great Canadian listeners, so let's see if we can partner and find an opportunity for that. And also like to put out that I'm about to do a podcast with American Forest, the U.S. Forest Service, and Parks of New York City. It's a big collaboration. I'll be going up to New York City in June and recording about urban forestry and climate adaptation. I'm very excited about that, and uh, I will have more information on that soon. And also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and I love doing them. I share stories from the podcast and my own observations about adaptation. And I will talk about it in ways that will motivate and inspire you. And you can find all this information on the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Marcy Rockman. Well, well into park discussion, and I wanted to sort of introduce it a bit more formally, but that's okay. We've talked about <laughs> this whole time. But one yeah. of the reasons that Marcy here is, is with me today is because she's no longer with the Park Service because it's very hard to interview federal employees for a variety of reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. But Marcy, you just recently resigned from your position there at the National Park Service, and and I think quite a in a bold way. And could you and we're I want to talk about some of the work that you did at Park Service and you've already had, but then some of the reasons why you resigned. But can you kind of give just a summary? And and it, it's gotten you in the news. It was obviously a, a big deal. It showed up in some news media. But what happened there? The reason I resigned was, as I've been phrasing it, it was harassment of me 
through management of my position. And it did result in numerous very uncomfortable situations. I did protest them and I tried to resolve them through official channels. And the end result was the Park Service declined the opportunity to resolve those issues. The way in which cultural resources versus natural resources is structured at the Park Service and the way it was structured in the climate change program was unequal. So at the time that I left, at its height, the climate change program had 20, I think it was 22 staff members. At the time that I left, it was between 15 and 16, depending on how you counted the number of people. From basically the end of 2014 through late 2018, I was the sole person working on cultural resources, or I was the person with the lead responsibility for cultural resources, and I did not have staff. And throughout the entirety of my position, I was the lead person for cultural resources. And Stanton Enomoto, um, who was our very esteemed colleague, was part of the program for a while. But then uh, he did move on to another position. And, and I was the one with the response, the remaining responsibility for cultural resources. As I've said, I, I always say so many times, there are 417 units of the National Park Service currently. Every one of them has traces of human occupation in it. Those traces may not be why the park was established, but every park has some human cultural heritage in it. I would argue that there are some parks where I think it would be really hard to find some natural resources. There might be some shrubs <laughs> in a pot or something like that. But some of our house museums really are very cultural and they don't have a landscape component to them. In addition, the Park Service Cultural Resources Directorate also runs many partnership programs that reach out to states, to tribes and to local governments. The work of those programs reaches, we will say, almost every community in the country. It is very, very broad reaching. My role was to support all parks in figuring out what climate change meant for cultural resources and supporting those partnership programs. I was one person. My natural resources colleagues in the climate change program were responsible for parks, and there were more of them. And this led to a great deal of ambiguity, conflict in what the most, in how to best allocate my time. And my position was also structured very awkwardly. I was paid for by the climate change program, but I was organizationally placed in the cultural resources program. So that meant I wasn't co-located or supervised by the other people who were doing climate change. I was based in the cultural resources program. And so there was this dynamic that came up was my primary responsibility to provide cultural resources to the climate change program or provide climate change to the cultural program. And many times I requested clarification of that because sometimes I literally would end up with two demands, you know, for the same afternoon. <laughs> and I would say, which one do I go to? And one of the things that would happen is I would be told, well, you're supposed to do both. And I would say, I literally can't be in the same place at the same time. You need to do both. And w the sequence of events that led to me ultimately departing really started with some of those discrepancies of a natural resources project being scoped with support for natural resources, but not commensurate support for cultural resources. And what happened was I protested that. And then I was disciplined for having protested it. And the underlying situation was never addressed. And then it happened again. And I protested it. 
and the underlying situation was not addressed. And, and it went on and on in that way. So when I say it, it was, it, you know, just kind of summarize it and say it's complicated <laughs> because it was, uh, but so much of it originated as I saw in that original imbalance between support for natural resources and cultural resources and me trying to really call out both this imbalance and continually to say, this is what I need in order to do my job and in order to protect and develop what is needed for the cultural resources of the park service. And my protests were say not heard or not welcomed, um, but that led to a lot of the conflict that developed into the situation in which I ultimately decided to leave. <laughs> that is very complicated. And, <laughs> and maybe you and I can tag team to give the some listeners some context here too, if it yeah. just seems too insider. So let me just start it off with um, that there was a climate change response program and it was embedded within the science division of the National Park Service. And most people don't realize there are service-wide entities that we would help all the parks and then there's the parks themselves and they're really quite autonomous. And so it's, you were in a position, I was in a position that we were there at the service of these parks. And so that in itself creates its own problems. There was just a few of us, I think three or four staff that were based in Washington, DC. Had I not been in DC with you, I would have even known less about the work that you've done. It really would have been like, okay, you send emails on occasion. So I was lucky to appreciate the stuff that you were doing just because we'd go have lunch or have a coffee, whatever. And, but I think of what was lost. Most of the staff for my listeners is that the climate change programs out in Fort Collins, Colorado with others, maybe spread out Hawaii, California. And so it was almost kind of set up very for difficult, but yeah. And, uh, Anything to add of just like the, the, how the park service even sort of the support work that you, you and I used to do. So if it's not clear, if you don't know National Park Service, and, and I think in, in the, in the articles that you provided, the, the National Park Service is the primary federal agency dealing with historic preservation, right? For the federal government? Yes. I often say it, the National Park Service is the lead agency for cultural resources in the federal government. And what, I, and what I'm getting at there, too, is like yeah. the tensions that you're bringing up between cultural resources and natural resources. Your average person in the United States thinks of National Park, oh, Yellowstone, Yosemite. Right. And then they, it's like, oh, Lincoln Memorial, that. And then, you know, but th throw out some cultural one. Like I think of Ebenezer Church in Atlanta is at the, the one is that in the or like, like a president's birthplace. The National Park Service actually runs all these things. There's a huge number of parks that are related just to cultural resources. And I don't think the public understands that. And so that gets to that notion of the, the natural resource tension versus the cultural, right? Right. It's like the so the National Park Service, as we were just saying, is the lead federal agency for cultural resources. And so it's responsible for a lot of the work under the National Historic Preservation Act. So it's it's legislatively assigned a number of big responsibilities. And probably also it's worth saying, like, the U.S. federal government doesn't have a ministry of culture. We don't have that. So the Park Service really fills in that role. But as you were just saying, that's not in the name. <laughs> you, so it's, that's not recognized. You say National Park Service and everyone thinks of the parks. And then the parks that most people think of are the Yellowstones, the Yosemites, the Grand Canyons. And so the association is of the National Park Service is with these natural spaces. And then I think the one that's often thrown in on that list is the Statue of Liberty, like <laughs> which is a cultural park. Um, but then like Jamestown Island has the traces of the first 
English settlement or permanent English settlement in the New World, we have Mesa, there's Mesa Verde, um, which was the park that inspired the 1906 Antiquities Act. And so many cultural parks that we have across the system. And as I mentioned before, every park, even if it was established because of its natural resources, has cultural resources in it. So Yellowstone has a lot of archaeology. The Grand Canyon has a lot of archaeology. There was there were Native Americans living in Yosemite that were removed at the time Yosemite National Park was created. So our responsibilities for cultural resources is is actually quite large. And it's larger than the name and the, the popular conception. And th- that's good background there. And so I, some of the material, especially that came out when you, you resigned and some of the media coverage that you got, I think in the Grist yeah. article, I, I thought this was fascinating. I, I don't think we ever talked about it when I was there, but just the the, the idea that uh, the agency traded phrases like cultural natural as gendered categories and cultural heritage was, and I'm quoting, I think you here, the feminine, the weaker, the one that is subservient to nature. All right. That is so loaded. That is very provocative. And elaborate. So that observation really came from one of our colleagues at the National Park Service. He is now retired. One of the things that I did as part of my position was I ran a monthly, called it a community of practice. So every third Wednesday, 1 to 2 p.m., I held a phone call that was open to anyone with the number. And I called it the climate and culture community of practice. And the goal was to talk about what is currently going on for cultural resources and climate change. What are some current events? I would go through our major projects, sort of where they were, what was going on with them, what was coming up next. And then I would always leave about 20, 15 to 20 minutes at the end to talk about some sort of naughty problem, some larger discussion issue, maybe bring on a guest speaker, but really leave that as a space for everyone on the call to to have a bit more of a discussion about some of the deeper things that we were dealing with. And as I was going through one of these calls, I pointed out that once again, I had had some trouble getting cultural resources recognized, listed on a document, being part of a project and something like that. And one of the the discussion that came up was, why is this such a problem? Why is it so hard? Why is there this constant need to remind my colleagues that cultural resources existed? And this colleague was on the call and he, he raised the question. He said, you know, I want to dive into this. And he's like, is this is this biblical? Like, is this from man will have dominion over the earth? And like, does it go back that far? And of course, I've told you that story of my time with the recycling truck. Like, where does this idea come from? I totally resonated with his question. He said, I want to dive into this. If I come up with something, can I report back on it on this call? And I said, yes, absolutely. Please do that. And so he dove in and a couple months later sent me a draft of a paper and then talked about it on the call. And he was the one who made the original observation that I cited, where he said, in our culture, in the English language, really, we don't mark our words officially as masculine or feminine words, the way that some of the the romance languages do. And I speak a little bit of French, so we don't use le or la, for example. But he said, in the way we speak about things and the way we think about them in English, we do still assign genders to things like we often refer to a ship, for example, as she. 
And I think that's very common. It would be very odd to be say, reading a novel or a poem and have a ship referred to as he. We have a general understanding that a ship is she. And so the point that he made was in the way that we just talk about nature versus civilization, he said in a general frame, civilization gets the masculine qualities and nature is the, has the feminine qualities. And for someone who's worked in the cultural resource management world, where we always talk about development and you know, developer wanting to build a building or a plan, this made eminent logical sense to me because there's generally an assumption that if someone wants to develop something, that development is going to happen. It's generally very hard to say no. And what we do is we mitigate the damage to nature, but the issues for nature don't signify as much as the desire to develop. So he, he set that dynamic civilization, masculine nature, feminine. Then he said, when you get into cultural resources management, those flip and natural resources management has the masculine qualities it deserves the money. It has the science. It's the one that decides on the models. And cultural resources management is feminine. It is supposed to support. It is the one that needs to be mitigated. It's the one that generally has less funding. And it's it's as more of a subservient role. And as we say now, once you've seen that, you can't unsee that. <laughs> it was just... It hit me on the call and my sense was it hit everyone else in the call. And we said, oh, my God, that's what's going on. That is the dynamic that we're experiencing. It doesn't tell us how to solve that. But just being able to name it, to describe what that relationship was, suddenly made a world of difference. And that was it was that particular discussion that I, I described in the interview that led to the Grist article. And in so many of my discussions that led up to my decision to resign, I felt like I was, I can, I was continually reliving that dynamic in which I was being told that I needed to be quiet. I needed to be nice. I needed to just support my colleagues, but I didn't have a right to exist in my own stead. I was not deserving of the same level of support. I needed to be smaller. And in my sense, given that dynamic that this colleague had pointed out, that was a gendered relationship. That, that's very interesting. And I wonder with it, like, let's say some gender studies, if, if someone's even attempted to write about this, it's probably worth looking around. And if not, you, you write the, the article, journal article yourself around this whole notion. But, I, I, you know, I've always discovered this. There's some variation of what's been out there already. This is a kind of a major pivot, but this is more sort of, I, th I think, useful is that I was looking through, you were responsible for a very important memo that came out about cultural resources and climate change. And then you were the primary author, and there's other people involved, but for an actual strategy on how the parks can integrate climate change planning into the management of those parks. And it really is a, a pretty significant document, Marcy. Um, you should be quite proud of your, I mean, it's very useful too. I was looking at it and I hate reports. You, you'll hear me rail on this podcast. If you're writing a report, you should be doing a podcast. But no, it was actually a interesting report and it covered a lot of the ground. And I think a lot of what we're talking about here is very qualitative and subjective and the report itself is like it gives you really good technical guidance and steps and what you're looking for and what the impacts are going to mean. So, you know, bravo on the, the strategy. And I think it's very relevant, obviously, to folks even outside the National Park Service. I will say thank you for that. <laughs> uh, there really was that strategy document 
really was, as I see it, kind of, it's the download of my brain <laughs> and it's everything that I was able to pull together to say, how do we do this? And you mentioned the, the policy memo, which came out in 2014. And I think that really was the start. And that is actually the highest level document for heritage and climate change in the U.S. government, which I'm, I'm still pretty proud about. And Director Jarvis signed it. And I, I even have his pen that he used to sign it, which is nice. one of my favorite artifacts. Uh, being a cultural heritage person, I, I'm all about artifacts. The policy memo set out what I think is one of the most profound statements. And it's something that I, I hope colleagues will continue to build on however they can going forward, because it set out the basically a two part goal for heritage and climate change. It said cultural heritage is being affected by climate change, and we must also learn from heritage to improve our responses to climate change. And essentially, it set those two pieces as equal. And in fact, it put the learning part first. That was number one. And the fact that heritage is being affected by climate change became second. And that's a really profound statement. When my position was originally framed, the way, the way the announcement was written is it said, we want someone to address the impacts of climate change on cultural resources. Given my background, when I applied for the position, I said, right, addressing the impacts of climate change is important, but that's only half the battle. And I said, you will never have enough resources or support to address all of the impacts that you want to address unless you have made essentially the cultural resources worth that effort. You need to connect. There needs to be a reason why the broader society needs those resources. It's not just that they're nice to have. We need to actually make that information part of the solution to climate change. And it became, I'm waving my hand in sort of the, the you know, the recycling loop there. It, it's a loop. The only way we will have support to protect cultural resources is if we are using them. And if we're using them, then we know we're going to need them. And, and sort of that goes around. So that was a really important statement. We only had about four and a half pages to for the policy memo. And even at the time, that was people, folks were telling me, like, this is really long. <laughs> policy memo should be short. So we couldn't really describe how to do all of those pieces. And at the time, we didn't even have a lot of information about how to do them. We just knew from a lot of discussions that I had had with a lot of different park staff and regional staff, that these were things that we needed to tackle and these were directions that, that we should go. And so the strategy document really was my effort to say, right, here's what we know about how to do these things. And here are as many case examples as I can give you about how we have already done these things for cultural resources. So the two documents really do go together and they were intended to support one another and, and function together. And the jaded Doug Parsons is my own involvement. I was involved with a lot of white papers and shuffling papers. And it, yeah. it, it really is a significant accomplishment. But at the same time, people don't realize how things are structured in government. It's like, oh, we have all these different divisions. And when they're starting to budget things, and then all of a sudden you have this sort of aspirational guidance. How does that manifest itself into, oh, let's hire 10 more Marcy's? It doesn't. And it takes advocates within individual programs as they're going through this budgeting process, and you just quickly lose momentum. And I think that's probably what happened. You you created that aspirational framework, but it's just at the same time, you, the, the advocates weren't there to kind of say, if we're going to really do this, we need to 
the but to me the budget process was all important and i think people kind of lost it and executive orders all those kind of things if it's not tied to budget you know the the, the career bureaucrats just snicker and, and run around those things yeah the, the budget was always one of the elephants in the room and i cultural resources particularly has always struggled with how do we make a big ask so i won't dive into that but i will say when i created the strategy document the way I organized it, and you pointed out it's it's designed specifically, I knew Park Service staff needed it, and that was my responsibility. But literally from the very first week that I was on in my position, I was getting calls from other agencies. I think NOAA and BLM called and said, we hear you exist, <laughs> and we don't want to figure out climate change for cultural resources, so we're really interested to hear what you're going to do. So that the strategy document was designed with our partners in mind as well. One of the things that I talked with many of my Park Service colleagues about once the strategy was was out and being used was my goal for them. It wasn't that it was necessarily going to generate a lot of new funding. I, I could see the reality in writing on the wall, but I wanted them to have support so that when they asked for money to do projects that they need, they knew they needed to do, they would have the strategy as the backup for that. So it wasn't just them saying, hey, I want to research this thing or I want to gather this kind of data. They could say, I'm seeing this thing in my park and researching it falls under goal three <laughs> and it's this piece. And so I've done steps one and two. I'm now at three. So this is where I want to go. And it was really trying to lay out a very clear approach and a number of clear directions so that whenever park staff were trying to justify and explain what it was they wanted to do or trying to just put words to like, I think I've got a problem here. How do I research it to give them that background research and that um, that like to stand on in a sense when they, they put forward a proposal. And I did see them, some of our colleagues starting to use it in that way. And one of my goals on on the flip side was to say, right, let's start. Let me back up for just a sec. One of my other uh, approaches for the strategy was to actually give Park Service some flexibility in designing priorities. We can't do everything at once. We certainly don't have the money or the staff to do that. But laying out the framework that's in the strategy, sort of from the top levels, we could say we want to emphasize these particular portions. And then from the bottom up strategy, it was designed to give the, the staff in the parks something to point to and say, this is why I'm doing that. So that was some of the thinking that went into designing the strategy. This is going to be hard for you, but I just, in regards to the National Park Service, because I want to talk briefly about what you're doing next, is that if you had to give a scorecard to the National Park Service when it comes to integrating climate change and adaptation in all of the 400 plus park units, what would you give them? And keep in mind, you no longer work for them. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm thinking, because there are a lot of ways to phrase it, are they where I wanted things to be? No. Are they farther along than I think a lot of other partners and agencies are? I do. Did we have a chance to do some really creative things? Yes. Have we made some actual decisions yet? Not quite <laughs> there. This is sounding like a C plus or B minus. You just got to go with your gut. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm. I'm in the B, B minus category for what we've accomplished, because there's definitely room for improvement. All right. No, no, no qualifying now. That's the whole point of the grade is like they just they want your professional assessment. We've already you've already yeah. explained in very yeah. like 
good detail of like what's going on there. So that's okay. We're, we're going to go with B or B minus. <laughs> See, I never graded a paper <laughs> when I was teaching with, without you know, some sort of like, this is what's wrong, but here's where you go. Like, so this is, it's, you know, not being able to provide the constructive feedback is, is very anathema to me. You sound like a scientist, you know, pull on your Randy Olson. Can just speak to the public out there? Darn it. <laughs> Uh, I will always be the, the my inner faculty member just doesn't sleep. All right. Oh, gosh. Okay. We're going to go. We'll just make it a F plus and we'll go from there. I'll just cut that in. You don't, I've pushed you far enough. And I think just your, how you've answered says all that we need to say. And if you can, I know the scientist in you is going to try to do it, but if you could do, if you were the head of the national park service or head of department of interior, even though it, crazy right now <laughs> what top three reforms or changes would you make in relation to cultural resources i would fund and staff them equally to start one or is, is fund and staff two things oh, those are the same just resources there's a need for some additional vision and i know we there were efforts to create a vision but they always ended up being Let's do some of everything. And given the challenges that climate is. OK, so I'm just going to say it. So fund and staff everything equally. You might say those one and two. And uh, climate change should be the organizing principle for heritage preservation, for cultural resources going forward. Because every piece of cultural heritage in the U.S., whether it is in a park affected by a park service program or adjacent to a park service program, it is is being or will be affected by climate change in some way. And every place has a climate story to tell. So even if it has somehow not yet affected by climate change, it has something to offer. I might as well dream big, right? Yeah. Was that that was that that was two, right? Uh, let's say fund and staff, because those are two very different things. OK. All right. Fun staff, climate change, organizing principle. There you go. Okay, so there's a lot more of the story to tell with you and the National Park Service. And so for my listeners, I'm going to have quite a few of the stories that are related that kind of dig into more detail and dig into I'm going to have the strategy. And so it's it's there's a richer story here, but um, we're just scratching the surface. But I just wanted to kind of end, Marcy, of you've left, left the National Park Service. What are you doing now and sort of what's your foreseeable future? So – I am, I'm in a major vision building, program building phase. In 2017, the World Heritage Program, which is program of UNESCO, made a request of ECOMOS, which is the International Council on Monuments and Sites, to undertake work that would improve the representation of both cultural and natural heritage in the reports of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. ECOMOS responded by organizing an international working group on climate change, and I am a member of that working group. And as part of that, I was asked to lead the IPCC work, which is completely awesome um, because there is so much involved in figuring out how to do that, what that looks like, getting research and colleagues organized to do it. It is it is an absolutely amazing opportunity. As the world of cult and I'm sort of laughing right now because as the world of cultural resources is organized, of course there was no money that came with that request. <laughs> it was just would you please? Because of my background and my research background, I mean it was such an honor and 
to be asked and to have an opportunity to be part of that kind of initiative is essentially impossible for me to say no. But I did have to put the qualifier on it because while I had quite essentially my day job at the National Park Service, I couldn't jump into that full body. I, I couldn't work on it really as part of my Park Service responsibilities. And and there's some deeper backstory uh, that we've touched on a little bit as, as to why that was the case. But I couldn't really use my National Park Service platform to do that work. So for most of 2018, what I was trying to do was figure out, okay, how can we make this into a program? Is there a way to find a university home for it? Just how do we get this off the ground? What does this look like? Finding partners, doing some of the background research to look at how cultural heritage has already been represented in the reports of the IPCC. Because I don't want to say that it is not there. They have recognized it. And in some of the more recent special reports, they've, they've done a, a really tremendous job. But there is definitely more work to do. So trying to keep up with that. When I left the Park Service, my plan and was, and it still is, to really take on this work and do it at the size and scale that it needs to be done at, to, to really do it properly. And I will I don't want to commit anyone at this point. There are currently some discussions in process with a nearby university to found a center to do this work. There's some other places I am reaching out to as well to really say, okay, how do we do this? Not So it's not just me in my living room doing it, but to really create an institutional home for it, bring in students, host the workshops, fund the grants, do the symposia, and really create a, a new body of knowledge and practice that connects heritage and climate change. And Doug, I'm going to use this as the opportunity to loop back to something you said very early on in our discussion, that sense of, right, so we have these heritage places, but we're not using them as much now. They're, we're not actively engaging with them. And as you heard my story with the recycling program, one of the things I have always wanted to do is say, how do we, or let's take this information from archaeology and actually use it directly to inform modern environmental change response. Topic of a whole other discussion is that the field of archaeology particularly doesn't have a good body of practice about how to use the information from the past. We know things happened in the past, but we still don't have a good body of practice of what we do with that information. Okay, so we know the Anasazi left Mesa Verde due to drought. Okay, right, what does that mean for us now? We know that the Mayans left some of their major cities due to drought 1,200, 1,500 years ago. Right, what do we do with that information? And so that's the piece that really needs to be figured out. And I have some ideas from my work in the Park Service and a science policy fellowship I did right before I was in the Park Service about what to do next. And I really want to build that into some demonstration projects. There's a number of things I want to launch an army of students on, on to do. And so I am now just in this building phase of reaching out, writing proposals, connecting with people, giving talks, writing some publications and building some energy around this need and this plan and this idea to really engage at this this global level. All right. So you're doing that work and it's unpaid. And obviously, if someone's interested in working with you directly, I think you're involved with some consulting. Maybe there's some local governments and there's other agencies that need your sort of expertise. Are you doing that sort of work one on one? Yes. And I would say if anyone is interested in developing some projects or working on lectures or courses, please reach out to me because I'd be very happy to discuss that with you and see what we might be able to put together. 
Yeah, and I could see a situation where like even a, a local government is starting to think about historic preservation. They could do some outreach to you and there's potential work opportunities there, right? Is that sort of a kind of a scenario that you would be interested in? Yes. Things like adaptation planning, the vulnerability assessment, the every place has a climate story training, all of that. Be really interested to build some new projects there. Okay, awesome. And just before we wrap this up, two last things. It sounds like I will get to see you in person. It's been a while. So you're going to be at the Keeping History Above Water conference? Yes, I will be presenting there and actually giving an update on the IPCC work that I described. Awesome. We get to see each other in person. That's great. Okay. Last question I ask of everyone. And if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? I'm thinking... Have you interviewed Sandra Fatorich and Erin uh, Seacamp? All right. I'm putting those two women on your list. Erin Seacamp and Sandra Fatorich are two amazing women who have, who worked with the National Park Service. They are with, and they were affiliated with NC State University and did work on figuring out how to prioritize cultural heritage formatted that is at risk of climate impacts and prioritize it for management action. So they really helped us figure out what significance means for historic structures and archaeological sites. And just really that deep dig in nitty gritty. This is how we do this. Cool. Do you think they'll be at that conference, that History Above Water conference? You know, I don't know, but it's possible that one or the other of them will be there. Okay, so your conversation has been a great primer for that. That's going to be all historic preservations. I'm really looking forward to that, talking to a bunch of different people. All right, Marcy, this was an awesome conversation. I'm glad I was able to have you on. How cool it is that, you know, what a weird world we live in. We work together at NPS, and now we're (laughs) we're recording a podcast together. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again, even if there's no pie. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Marcy for coming on and sharing her story on how society is going to adapt cultural resources to climate change. Marcy and I didn't dig in too much around the circumstances of her leaving the National Park Service. It's a complex story, and if you want to learn more, some of the links that I have in my show notes go into deeper detail on what happened there. It is a shame that Marcy still isn't at MPS, but as you heard from her, she's moved on to some incredibly important things. But I encourage you to connect with Marcy directly if you want to hear more of her story. Or as she said, if you are interested in working with Marcy on historic preservations, maybe work for a local government, maybe work for a private organization who does this, she is the expert. You Reach out to her and start working with her. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America and Daps and ask to join. I'll prove you right away or some cool conversations that happen there. I'm also on Instagram at America underscore Adapts and at Twitter at USA Adapts. Check them out. Tweet at me. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. It's the highlight of my week. And it leads to this letters from adapters. As you heard from Margaret's, I get some amazing letters. I love them. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Check out that website, americadapts.org. All this is in the show notes. Just look down on your phone. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.